paraphrasing, they said, we've looked at our three finalists. We don't like any of them. We want you to apply. Welcome to the Exploring Washington State podcast. Here's your host, Scott Cowan. Welcome back to this episode of the Exploring Washington State podcast. My guest today is Chris Bruya, and Chris retired as the director of jazz activities at Central Washington University. Chris went to Central at the same time I did. We know some mutually, um, we know some of the same mutual people. I don't know that we've ever actually met. So Chris, welcome back to the show, because as we'll talk about, we had technical challenges. Yeah. Can you help me out? Let's let's talk about your your time at Central as an undergrad first. So you you mentioned you grew up in Linwood before we started recording. Were you involved in jazz growing up in middle school and high school? Oh yeah, I remember <coughs> specifically junior high jazz band, which was a a cool club you could be in, and I thought it was the the coolest thing ever, especially as a trumpet player because you got to play these these cool things. And I remember playing the tune Woodchopper's Ball, which is a uh, Woody Herman tune. And you know, I couldn't figure out how, really how to play it, but it was cool <laughs> nonetheless. Uh, but yeah, I started early. I All the way through high school, I had great experiences. And I actually started writing jazz arrangements my junior year of high school. I was really lucky to have a high school director that recognized that I was into that. And he gave me arranging lessons. And, uh, I still do that today. I still write music and, uh, in the idiom, but anyway, um, right after high school, I went to shoreline and that's where I met Dewey Marler, uh, who's still an active musician in Seattle, a great Barry sax player, but he plays everything in terms of the woodwinds. He was anyway, he was taking a trip over to central to uh, check out going there next year his the next school year and he goes why don't mm-hmm. you come along with me and i said okay <laughs> it was a road trip you know and i didn't know anything right. about central other than i knew that uh there was a guy there named bob panario who i had met i think the year before that he was a fabulous composer arranger and i'd met him at a, at a arranging workshop and so i thought oh i'll go check that out anyway i get over there and i meet john mowett who I didn't know anything about him. And I thought, well, who is this guy? <laughs> Cause he was, had a, quite the bravado you might say. Um, and so he was, <laughs> he was trying to talk to Dewey and I about coming to school. Well, you know, son, this is like the jazz Mecca of Washington. <laughs> it was, I was like, really? Okay. So I had, I had my eyes set on Western actually, but okay. the guy I was going to go to Western to study with Bill Cole died. And so I was looking for another place. So I said, okay, I guess I'll go to Central. So I auditioned for some scholarships on trumpet and uh, Panario, the trumpet teacher, gave me a scholarship to go there. And I thought, okay, that's where I'm going to go. So that's how I ended up at Central the first time. And my first, I think my first quarter there, I made Jazz Band 1. I don't know how I did. I shouldn't have, but I did. And uh, I didn't live up to the the rep that the band had. And so I was out after one quarter. 
demoted down to second band. And so I learned, you know, to hit the practice room and all those kind of things that you got to do to move forward as a musician. And uh, I was in the, I believe I was in the jazz band one next, the next year with Mowat again. And, um, okay. It was a fabulous ride for sure. Let me, let me ask, let me interrupt you and ask you a question. Where did you live when you, when you went to Central? Um, I lived off campus at first, which was probably oh, a mistake. I, okay. Yeah. I had a, an old neighbor who had moved. She was a, actually my babysitter when I was a little kid and she had moved to Ellensburg and I was sure that living in the dorms was a bad idea. So I got her to fake that she was a relative so that I could legally live <laughs> off campus. <laughs> and so I lived off campus and I actually lived with Dewey, the guy that I took the trip with. We lived over in the, uh, in the mobile home park next to the county fairgrounds behind okay. the first last right. chance tavern. So, and then I, and then I moved to an apartment downtown later that year. And then the next year I lived in the dorms because <laughs> I figured out it was a lot easier <laughs> to have your. So what dorm did you live in? I lived in North Hall actually. In North. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I wanted a single room. I did I, I'd had a year of roommates and I didn't want any more roommates. Gotcha. So, okay. Yeah. All right. So. So you, you make jazz band one, you don't keep the position. You go back to jazz band two, your sophomore year, if you will, you, you become jazz band one again. Okay. Yeah. At that point in your career, college career, what did you, what was your, what were your aspirations? Did I you want to be, be an instructor? Did you want to be a teacher? You wanted to be a player? I was, okay. I just saw, I, I thought I would be a teacher to, to quote, fall back on. Um. Mm -hmm. A lot of people do that, but I was sure I, w I was going to be a player. But then okay. I had some experiences where I was leading small ensembles and teaching other players how to play the music, like in the practice rooms and stuff. And I thought, I kind of like this teaching stuff. And I seemed to be suited to it. I could make things clear to people that didn't quite get what was going on. And so by the time it was the year and quarter to, to student teach, I was pretty sure that's what I wanted to do. Um, so then I, I student taught over on the west side at uh, Juanita High School with Bruce Gut Gazelle, legendary okay. educator. But I was his first student teacher. He'd only been teaching seven years at that time. So we weren't maybe more than 10 years difference in age. And uh, Bruce is one of my good friends now, <laughs> has been ever since. Um, but anyway, I student taught with him and had great success. And later that year, I student taught in the fall. And then by winter, about halfway through winter quarter, I was, I'd done all my paperwork and I was able to get my certificate. And then I got a long-term sub position at Vashon Island High School through some connections, okay. some all right. Yeah. The mom of my sister's did, friend did you, called me. <laughs> did you live on the island? No, no. I commuted. I lived, uh, okay. I lived with Duff McKagan and his family at that time. And so I was commuting <laughs> from the U district area. I'd go over the Spokane street bridge and get on the ferry. And there were a group of us of teachers that lived 
in Seattle. And uh, we would park on the Seattle side, walk on, and then they had this old beater station wagon on the other side that we would all climb into and, and then drive up halfway up Fashion Island to go to the high school. That, that sounds like Vashon Island. Yeah. <laughs> it just does. It was it great. I, I, so I lived I lived from Vashon for about a year. Okay. I really so you know it. what I'm talking about. Yeah. I do. Yeah. And I, okay. I loved it there. And they they wanted me to come back full time, you know, the next year. But that's when I got the phone call from Larry Gukin, who was the new director of bands at Central. He asked me to to be his TA and work on my master's degree that next year. And I was like, okay, I'll do it. Because <laughs> I thought, because <laughs> um, I wanted to go into composition. We were talking about my writing that I, that I had done. I wanted to go into composition and there was a new department chair at Central, Donald White, who was a published composer of pretty good renown. And uh, I could study with him. And then I was told that as the TA that I would direct the second concert band, the conductor of it. And then I'd also would teach either jazz band two or jazz band three under Mowat. And I wow. thought you can't get any better than that kind of an experience, even though it's the same school I did my undergrad at. I thought I can't turn this down. They're asking me to come. There's a stipend. I'm, I'm going to do it. And so I did. Right. And so I was there for two years in that, that role as teaching assistant. And once you got your master's, where did you end up? My first teaching job was in McMinnville, Oregon, at McMinnville okay. High School. But there was a little glitch in the middle of that. My my fiance, Monica, we're now married and have been for, I don't know how many years, 30-something. <laughs> uh, anyway, she, she was working for her uncle in Salem, Oregon. And uh, I applied at McMinnville, which was like 20 miles or so from Salem. It was a beautiful drive every day through the wine country. But Oregon has some really whacked out, at least at the time, really whacked out certification requirements. And so my degree didn't work in Oregon. Oh. And so I, after they had hired me and told me I was the person, they came back about a week later and said, sorry, we can't hire you because you don't have this class and this class in your transcript. And I went, oh. And so... In the meantime, I applied and got the job at Mark Morris High School in Longview. And okay. then McMinnville called again and said, we really want you. Is there any way you can take some summer classes and pick up those credits? And so I started call. you know, this is pre-internet, you know, so you couldn't go online and find a place where you could get these classes. So... I, I found a way through Seattle Pacific University to get credit for teaching at Burton Music Camp on Vashon Island. Remember that? Okay. You know, Burton, Camp Burton there. I, I, anyway, there was a, I, a music I, I, summer camp that happened there every year. And I knew the director right. of it from uh, previous things. So I, I, I wheeled and dealed and I got this situation where I could teach at the camp and get the credits that I needed through SPU. And then I could get this job actually in McMinnville because I wanted to be down there because okay. Monica was in Salem mm -hmm. um, and we could be together, um, so to speak. So it all worked out. 
I ended up getting the job in McMinnville and I was there for five years. And then uh, I decided that I really wanted to be teaching college and I, I knew I needed a doctorate. So I, I made plans to move back to Seattle and go to the UW and get a degree in conducting. Um, but that never happened. I, I did get a job. I, I taught at Newport High School in Bellevue for a year. And I was okay. just about ready to go over and talk to the, the guy at, at the UW about starting a degree, possibly the next fall or the year after that. And I got a call from Pacific University. During my last year at McMinnville, I taught part-time at Pacific. I, I did an evening concert band that was half students, half community members kind of thing. And it was a big okay. hit. So they, they had uh, done a, a search for a band director at Pacific. And they said, I'm just kind of uh, paraphrasing. They said, we've looked at our three finalists. We don't like any of them. We want you to apply. <laughs> and I went, oh, that's code for if you go through our interview process, the job's yours. Well, that's what happened. So after one year at okay. Newport in Bellevue, I got this job at Pacific University, which is a, about a thousand students, very small, um, east of Portland, out in Forest Grove. And uh, mm -hmm. after one or two years, I ended up being the department chair and all these pressures were put upon me, but they wouldn't give me tenure because I didn't have a doctorate. Mm -hmm. You know, it's that a doctorate thing. So I said, okay, you know, and there were, there were rumblings about getting rid of the music department at that time. So I said, oh, I don't know. So Dave Bardoon is a name you, you might know. I've heard that name. Yeah. He, he was teaching at Mount Hood Community College, which is on the other side of Portland, out in Gresham. And he asked me to apply for their new jazz band director gig. And so I did. And that was my next place. I was at Mount Hood Community College. Okay. And I spent seven years there. After three years, there was an opening, internal opening to become the interim dean of the College of Arts and something, performing visual arts, that's what it was. And so I ended up doing that. I was an administrator for three years and Things went pretty well for me, but I started to realize that wearing a suit and tie in the summer and having to work during the summer when my kids were basically five years old and one year old, I thought, this isn't a good idea. So I, I ended up, uh, somebody, somebody else was retiring in the music department. And so I worked a deal where I could take over their job. I could move out of administration and back into my teaching role that I'd been in before. And this was very unheard of and very weird for Mount Hood because they were highly <laughs> unionized. And to go from okay. a union person to a non-union person, which is administration, <laughs> and then back again, there, there was lots of skepticism about whether or not that was especially from the union people. Anyway, that was all worked out and I was going to, uh, that's what I was going to do the next year. And this was about March or so. Well, I get a call from John Mowat. He goes, son, 
Central wants me to recruit you to apply for the new jazz position. And I said, oh, okay. So I applied at Central and went through the interview process. And that's where I ended up in 2002. And I was there for 20 years. We just retired last June. So right. that that's my so the, teaching stuff in a nutshell. That's, yeah. So you spent 20 years at Central. Yeah. Didn't seem like it, but it was. I, I, let's see, I was on campus 2019, 18, went back with one of my roommates for homecoming football game. Hadn't been around campus in a few years. Campus has changed since the early 1980s. A lot. Yeah. But what, let me ask you this, in, the, in your 20 years there, what changed, because didn't, isn't there a new music hall? Yeah. What was there in the... In the it was yeah. built around... Well, it opened in uh, spring 2005. I remember I took my jazz band to Europe in the summer of 2005, and we were the first thing to happen in there. Uh, we actually rehearsed. Okay. Um, so around 2005, it was new. So it's literally... How old now? Um, 17, 17 years? Yeah. So it's wow. definitely aging quickly because when it was built as with all things like that it wasn't big enough to begin with the original plan was but then cuts happened and cuts happened and so basically about a third of the building was eliminated from the original plan and it it was barely big enough to hold the music department and then the music department began to grow and uh, it you know usually a concert hall in a building like that is reserved just for concerts but mm-hmm. this gives you an idea of how crowded it was. That that became a rehearsal hall. So there were rehearsals wow. going on all day long in the concert hall. And wow. so okay. for me as the jazz guy, when it came time for me to do a dress rehearsal in the concert hall for the concert that I was going to have the next day, it was impossible to do it because it was a, mm. it was the only rehearsal place that certain ensembles could play in. So anyway, yeah, the, there's a, you know, the department changed as a course of all that. But, you know, you mentioned the the whole campus has changed. There's been a new science building, the music building. There's been two additional science buildings just in the last seven years or so. One just opened, like, last year, I think. Uh, that was a big concentration of the administration was to create a science quadrant of the of the campus to attract those kind of mm-hmm. students and so a lot of money was dumped into that um but some of the old buildings are still there like you i mentioned i lived in north hall that's still there <laughs> um, mm-hmm. but it's right next to the new circ they call it student university recreation and something or circ s-u-r-k it's what okay. we used to call the the uh Student Union, the sub. Yep, sub. Remember the sub? sub. So the sub got the sub got partially torn down and about a third of it was used and added onto and it became computers and media sorts of degrees. Okay. So it's in generally the okay. same place. But the circ, its footprint is on 
you might remember that road when you walked north and then you turned at North Hall to go, what would it be, east? Um, you'd go by Wilson Hall. Mm-hmm. That Wilson was torn down in that whole road area and parking lot. That's where now the Cirque is. And wow. another thing that made lots of these around. things be able to happen, you might remember when we went to school there, the railroad tracks went right through the center of campus. Yes. And the trains came through every few hours. Well, that got shut down. And so Central took over the railroad tracks. So that allowed building and things. And then on the other side of the tracks was the old Black Hall uh, from the where oh, yeah. the circus now. And Black, Black was basically surrounded by a new building, um, which is now a really beautiful uh, building for the Ed Department. Yeah, it, the, the campus really has, well, when I think about it, it's, you know, I went there 40 years ago. So it's mm-hmm. not like it's yesterday. So, yeah, it's time. normal for things to, to develop like that. But right. yeah, I was glad so to be how, able to be uh, around when the new music building was built. And uh, yeah. that also happened to me when What I was, was it a, like? Let me ask you this question. What was it like? So you did your undergrad and your grad at Central. You go away for a while, but you come back. Did you ever think when you were going to Central in your, for your education, did you ever think that you would live in Ellensburg? Well, no, I never did. You know, so a yeah. lot of people have this romantic fantasy, if you will, about living in Ellensburg once you've been there. and. Mm-hmm. You might you might remember yeah. when you were there, like I was, that there was a, a supposedly a Native American curse. That once you remember that once you move to Ellensburg, you can never leave. It will always draw you back. <laughs> um, that that's what I remember hearing. Now, I don't know if that's true or somebody made it up, or if it's racist or whatever, but that's what I remember. But, you know, I never really thought I want, would live there, and I didn't really want to because of the wind. <laughs> I hate the wind. <laughs> and now I've lived here for 20 years with the wind, and like yesterday, it was like 50 miles an hour. Today is beautiful. You know, it's just like up and down. It's either really bad or it's beautiful. But Mao used get, to say. You, you, you never Mao. got used to it, did you? I never did. And you really can't. Yeah. There's certain places to live yeah. that are better, and we happen to live out here mm-hmm. in what's called... We didn't know it at the time when we bought the house, but this is known as the wind tunnel out here. (laughs) Oh, good. So, yeah. Good. Anyway, that's where we are. But, you know, John Mao had said, son, if it wasn't for the wind, this place would look like Seattle. And maybe so. You know, maybe, maybe the environment kept a good chunk of people away so Central's maintained its small town charm. Because it's still, Ellensburg still has that small, even though it's, it's changed, but it's still, yeah. like I told you in the pre-interview, I, I go through Ellensburg three, three, four times a month. Yeah. And I never get tired of going to Ellensburg ever. I enjoy it. It's, uh, it's always, it, there's something about that, the downtown of Ellensburg and yeah. Not that I go on campus, but just driving in front of the school. There's something I, I remember. Okay. So th- I still, to this day, enjoy it. I remember the day my parents drove me from, 
from the Puyallup area to, to Ellensburg to drop me off for my freshman year. And for the life of me, I can't remember what the street is, but it's the street that's the west side of campus, that tree-lined street. Oh, hey, um, what street is that? Eighth is the, what did it used to be called? I can't remember. I don't know. It was B Street, I but think. To me, at 18 years of age, riding in the backseat of my dad's, well, it would have been a station wagon, <laughs> in 1980, that street with the with the trees, you know, covering, you know, kind of providing a canopy over the over the street. And then looking over to the left to the older homes that were there and then to the right to the campuses we're driving. Because I went to, uh, I lived in El, El Monte Hall. Mm, yeah. Um, and just driving that, you know, half a mile is stuck in my brain is what college is all about. There was something very collegiate to me about that visual. Yeah. And I think that's probably at the root of my uh soft spot for Ellensburg, if you will, is I sure. still have that. That, that makes memory. sense. And I really, you know, I, I really, I really enjoyed um, my, my, my bio on Explore Washington state says um, my, um, this, my freshman year was the best six years of my life. Um, <laughs> there's some, there's some truth to that statement. Yeah. I had a really good time uh, in Ellensburg. Academically, um, I either was all in or all out. My my transcript is well. I they wouldn't let me back. Let's put it that way. Um, but I learned a lot. I, I had I made great friends. Sure, I learned a lot that maybe doesn't it didn't translate into a degree. But I I, I hold those years at, in Hillsburg in the highest regard. And uh, Central is, you know, at the, at the center of that. I think and it's really great that you're, I think I told, you're saying that you learned many things that at college that weren't part of a degree necessarily. That's why we go to college. Right. And, you know, just to go off on a small tangent on that, I, to me, that whole thing has changed. Um, and it, maybe it's because of a couple of factors. College is way more expensive. So now the goal of the students is to get out of there as fast as possible. Where back when you and I were in college, tuition was $206 a quarter. You could explore and take all kinds of classes. I took six years to graduate. Um, and so th those kind of things have gone away. And then the other thing is um, generally I see our American culture as not valuing a college degree like it seemed like it was when we were young. So that's well, just I what think, I see. And I don't, and I, and I, I feel very similar to, I have a similar opinion to that too. You're right. $206 a quarter. Yeah. Um, now granted in the early eighties, we were in a recession, but uh, I wasn't, I was an only child and I didn't have to have financial aid because my father um, had a middle-class income and he was able to invest in, in my education. And I, I was lucky I didn't take on any debt. Yeah. Um, and I worked, I mean, I found, I worked in the, you know, around town, I worked in the dining hall. I, I found, um, 
I made a lot. I mean, here, here's, here's my, here's my, what we call a side hustle nowadays. So I, like I said, I lived in Almonte up north, you know, the north end of campus yeah. and uh, my roommate, um, Ken, he was a military kid. He, he grew up in, in a military family and he moved around. So Ken, Ken didn't have a lot of stuff, you know, he, he traveled light. Mm. And so you know, my, so they dropped me off in August. Sometime in September, they come back and, and my dad worked for Nabisco. And uh, he goes, you want me to bring you some Nabisco stuff? Oh, sure. And so he brought me over, you know, boxes of Nabisco cookies and crackers. <laughs> wow. And all of a sudden I became, you know, the popular, yeah, I became sure. the popular guy on the floor, right? Yep. Well, you mentioned the first to last chance tavern. <laughs> uh that plays into this story. So my, my very first day at Central, I go there for what? Remember preview week? Oh, yeah. Did you? you yep, know, where I they, did that. Incoming freshmen come in and, right. So I, my parents dropped me off. I, you know, like any good 18-year-old, I set up my stereo. And we go downstairs for some gathering and we all go off to the dining hall together. When I come back to my dorm room, the music is blaring out of my dorm room. And I open up the door and it's my roommate. I don't know. I can't remember his name because I think I met him once. And he goes, hey, we're going to have a keg tonight. Hope you don't mind. And he left. Oh, okay. And, uh, well, you're not supposed to have kegs in the dorms. Right. Much less that you weren't 21. Um, he got caught and he got kicked out of school. <laughs> Immediately. <laughs> Before school even started. Immediately. That night. My first night at college. So, the first and last chance, do you remember, you know, the 7-Eleven was right there. Remember that? Yep. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so, there was a couple of guys on our in our dorm that were 21, and they they had a loophole to the, the no keg rule, which was, you know, gallons of milk container, you get milk, gallon milk containers, go to the first yeah. and last chance, and for $2, they would fill it up. Yep. Schlitz malt liquor. And you would, yeah. And you would get a milk crate and put four gallons in there. And then you would stack them on a hand truck and bring 16 gallons of beer from the first and last chance tavern up the sidewalk to your dorm. Yeah. That was, that was. I have a very similar experience with the first last. See. Okay. With the, with the jazz band. um, I was, I'm a trumpet player. So I was in the trumpet section. And so we mm-hmm. used to do what were called gallon sectionals. So we, what we would do is we would get together as a trumpet section and practice our parts. And everybody had to bring their own gallon. And it didn't end until the gallons were gone. <laughs> yeah. So see, that's, le- that's a legendary now, term, the gallon sectional. So let me just pause public service announcement. Yeah. Neither Chris nor Scott are encouraging this behavior in anyone of any age. Now we'll go on with our story. <laughs> right. That's true. That's true. But you know, the, but so, yeah. Okay. So, so, so going back to my father and this Nabisco stuff, right? Yes. Um, I started selling Nabisco products for 50 cents a package. Oh, so this was your side and hustle. This was my side hustle was yeah, the Nabisco I, for 50 cents a package. And my roommate, was traveling light. Like I said, we used his closet and we turned it into a, 
a convenience store. <laughs> and wow. my my dad my dad would come over. My mom and dad would come over like every two weeks, and he would fill the station because Nabisco. So in the Nabisco warehouse, if something is dropped, and they were back back then, uh, cookies and crackers were wrapped in brown craft paper, and and then so your your Oreos were in a cardboard box. Well, if the box was dropped, they they was damaged. They had to throw it away. And this is the stuff my dad was bringing over to me. Not yeah. Not okay. So. Well, it got to be about Christmas time and my clients were now placing orders with me. Hey, can you get me Oreo double stuffs? Can you get me mystic mints? And I would be, you know, once again, this was pre cell phones and pre internet, you know, calling my dad up and saying, Hey, can you get me this? And I was literally placing orders. And then everybody knew like, well, Scott's dad will be there on Saturday. We'll go over Saturday afternoon and get, we had a line out our door. That's All, just amazing. Every weekend. <laughs> yeah, it was a, uh, it was, it was great, and and that funded the the trips to the last chance. <laughs> the last chance. Well, of course. Well, the first last, yeah, is and so you know that was, yeah, 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 and I. Uh, anyway, that that's kind of those two little, the first and last, and the Nabisco. That that sums up my college, you know, my college uh, yeah. experience. We, so I remember this. So when M- Wansley was my roommate. Um, jazz night parties were legendary. They were, yeah. Our the house that Michael and I and another guy by the name of Todd Phillips, um, we rented, um, this home on Fourth and Anderson. We had the main floor in the basement, and a in the upstairs was an apartment rented out to some of the guys on the basketball team. We we threw one of the jazz night parties at our house. And it was, it was insane. Yes. It was absolutely insane. I couldn't, I did not, I wouldn't have believed it if I wasn't there. Uh, The jazz department was a bunch of really fun people. That's for sure. That's for sure. Yeah. I had no idea you guys were doing these gallon sessions. I, I didn't. I the, never the sectional. Heard, heard that. Yeah, you call it a sectional yeah, because it's the trumpet section, or the trombone yeah. section, or the sax section, or the rhythm section. So a sectional means you're getting together just with your section. So a gallon sectional <laughs> has a certain connotation. No, no idea. But I've used that terminology with my, well, former students now, but my present students, and so it's sort of. The gallon sectional concept had a comeback in the last few years, shall we say, <laughs> which is great, you know, but I, you know, like things have changed. Like when you and I were in college, we could experiment, take classes. And if you screwed up, you right did it. So I'm not sure if this is a reason why, but students these days think that they are party animals and they aren't even close to the way it was, <laughs> you know, like you said, it was yeah. legendary. I went to, uh, it was, it was, I decided with a, another colleague of mine that we were going to crash a jazz night party like three years ago. Okay. <laughs> and so we showed up at the jazz night party and walk in, all the students were like, Oh, professor Bruyere is here. <laughs> and we just walked around and looked and lame, tame, that's all i can say lame and tame anyway 
We probably should stop well, talking I'm gonna, about I, those sorts of things. Well, yeah, but but before we go there, I got I got I got two I got two places that were. Uh, well, I'll give you three places that were uh, foundational in my central experience, and let me just see what your what your reaction are. Mm-hmm. And so, for anyone that's listening who went to central, I'm curious what you all have to say too. Number one, the ranch. Yeah, I never experienced it. It burned down before I could. You never did. I never did. No. You. Oh my gosh. Okay. Yeah. All right. Okay. All right. Next. The Valley Cafe. Yeah. Love that place. I played there a number of times on that little stage. Yeah. 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 And I loved, you Back know, the, in the early Art, 80s. Deco, Art Deco decor in there was mm-hmm. just so cool. It's awesome. It was awesome. Yeah. And they had an espresso machine in the early 1980s. That was exotic. Yes. Okay. Now the last one. And this is where... I probably gave this company more money than I gave Central Intuition, but Frazzini's Pizza. Yeah. John Frazzini. So I have a cool story to tell about that. I loved okay. Frazzini. So when I was a grad student, remember I was a, a TA. And so right. we were going to have a, a pizza feed for the band after one of the football games. And so I called up Frazzini's and I, I ordered, I think, 20 or 30 pizzas. I forgot that I did that and we didn't have a party. And so I get a call. This is pre pre cell phone. I heard that Rosini was looking for me because they had all these pizzas that they'd made and I needed to come in and pay for them. I was like, uh, I actually hit out for a day in town. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, it all turned out they were able to oh. to sell them, you know, to calls that they had come in for uh, deliveries and stuff. But but still, I was worried. And uh, yeah, Frazzini's was yeah such a great place. It still yeah it was. exists as a pizza place now. It's called I can't remember the name, but you walk in there and it looks pretty much the same. Okay, all right. I haven't I haven't been. Yeah, years so okay. So, but those those three places, um, Wansley, uh, he was working at the ranch, and uh, yeah, he worked at the ranch for a while, and um, I mean, I don't know. It was it, it was it certainly wasn't a nice place, but it was it was just it was a fun place. Yeah, and, I wish I could um, have experienced it. I always heard so much. Yeah, it was it was iconic. It really was. It really was iconic. Okay. So we could go. Now we've done our Ellensburg, you know. Yeah. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Memory lane. There we go. <laughs> Memory lane. Yeah. What, why do you think, and this is a central question. Prof, Professor Mowed, however his title really was, I, I took a jazz, intro to jazz class from him. Mm-hmm which was, you know, kind of, in some ways it was laughable because we listened to jazz records in the auditorium. It was the most laid back class that you could possibly ever have. Yeah. But it was also so valuable because 
it exp- and I was a kid who listened to, you know, seventies rock and roll. That was, that was my stuff. That was, that was, that was my, my, uh, my wheelhouse growing up. Jazz was not something I was familiar with, sure. nor am I really all that familiar with it today. I'm not, a, I'm not an, an expert in the, in the genre, but sitting through history of jazz was mind blowing. It was great. And even though it was technically easy because you listen to records, I mean, my gosh. Why do you think Central became so well-known and is still so well-known for this jazz program? What what was the, what happened? What, how did this all come about in your opinion? Well, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of history to it all. Um, back in, I think, 1947, the band director at the time, I think his name was Bert Christensen, started a group he called the Suisians. This was back when it was C-W-C-E, Suisi. So the Suisians mm-hmm. was a dance band. And this was unheard of. You just didn't do that because jazz was a four-letter word. But So he did this in the evenings, and he had charts because he had played in a a big band during World War II. And so he started this group, and out of that came some amazing music educators that were legendary at the time of my high school and college days. One of those was uh, um, Waldo King. Waldo King and John Mowood were very good friends when they taught together in, in Seattle. Uh, my trumpet teacher, when I went to Central, Bob Panario, played in the Suisians as a young kid, um, among other groups. And so, oh, one of the, the people I taught with at Mount Hood, um, Hal Malcolm, also, he played drums in that group. And he went on to start the program at Mount Hood, which, which was legendary. And so there was mm-hmm. somehow this, the Suisians was like the catalyst that I think got it going. And so then by the time, see, Maud was also a Central student. He came to Central and he played oh, in, he was. in the, yeah, he played in the later Suisians um, in the early 60s, mid 60s, um, played drums. And so there was stuff going on in terms of jazz and big band playing that wasn't going on anywhere else. So it attracted a certain student that wanted to explore that kind of music. And then um, Maud was asked to take over the program. Bob, Bob Panario, my trumpet teacher that I went over there for, he, he directed the jazz band from the mid sixties to the early seventies. And it was just legendary. They, they would go and play on these uh, concerts at the opera house that would happen. Mm-hmm. And they'd just blow everybody off the stage. Part of that was because of Bob Panaria, just the way he was. And he was a very dynamic director. And it's like, damn it, nail the music, you know. And he would he wrote a lot of the charts at the time because there wasn't a lot of music published. So he was he had that culture going where he started a, if you will, a stable of people that were writing music as students. That some of them went on to write for Hollywood mm-hmm. and movies and stuff out of Central. Mm-hmm. So there was this culture going on, started by these amazing people, but Bert Christensen, uh, the students that came out of the early Suisians, uh, Bob Panario, 
John Mowat then took over in 72. And within two years, the jazz band had played at a couple of national events, had won these national stage band contests. And then he started the vocal jazz program, which also went on to win some things. And everything just took off from there. And, you know, nothing breeds success, but success. And that was something that for me, I always tried to tie into is like, okay, yeah, we have all these fabulous alumni, but what can you do to live up to that same level of performance and achievement? And, you know, what happened with me was I, I took over for Mallet and I think I had a lot of support out there in the alumni community, but I, there was this nagging feeling like, uh, what's that called? The imposter syndrome. Like, right, am, right. am I really the right person to be following and leading this program? And so I had self-doubt in the early years, uh, but things started to happen. Like I mentioned, I took the band to Europe in 2005. We played at the Montreux Jazz Festival, the North Sea Jazz Festival. That had never happened wow. before at Central. And I was like, okay, let's keep doing this kind of stuff. Um, and we started playing all over the state in the Northwest. And the band started to take off because uh, of the success that we'd have attracted a certain clientele of students to campus that wanted to be a part of that. And then probably the peak of it all was in uh, 2015 when we competed in the Next Generation Festival, which is a student jazz festival connected, connected to the Monterey Jazz Festival in California. We won. Wow. Little old Central wow. won. We were up against USC, a University of North Florida, some California schools. Uh, we won, and that meant winning meant that we got to play at the Monterey Jazz Festival that next September. This was April. And so for mm -hmm. my band, Central's band, to go down and play at the Monterey Jazz Festival on the same stages as their heroes, that was profoundly life-changing for many of my students who, who have now gone on, gotten master's degrees, and now they're teaching and playing all over the U.S., if not the world, that were in that band. Um, so, you know, I'm not really sure why this all happened, but some people have said it's just because of the directors along the way. I think I'm only the, or was only the fourth director of the jazz band because there was Burt Christensen, wow. Panario, Mawad, then me. Wow. Um, okay. And three of us were That's... central alums. We <laughs> were up there as an alumni now teaching at our alma mater, trying to keep the standards high. See, that's, as an outsider, my, I mean, I had um, Wansley, mm -hmm. Todd Phillips was um, in the music program. Um, in my, in Al Monte. Um, the music hall. Yeah. The, well, yeah, it was, but, um, and I can't think which one was it. Was it Chris? Harshman. Um, Oh yeah. Harshman. Harshman brothers. Um, yeah. Was it? Yeah. The Harshman brothers. Paul, so Chris, they were, and Matt. yeah, they, and I can't remember. I think it was Chris. That was my, my year. 
and he he lived a couple of doors down from me and he had this the dorm that he had the room was like for three people it was it was bigger and there was always strange noises coming out of that room and is from a, from like I said from a kid growing up on 70s rock and roll yeah and he would there would be you know the brothers would show up and they were boisterous <laughs> and yeah. um I think that's a yeah that's a good word to use it is um and other others others in the program would come up and and it was just interesting and then I'd be talking to him and say, well, what are you doing? Well, I'm going down to practice for a few hours. It's 10 o'clock at night. Yeah, I know. I'm going to go down to practice. Huh. That was odd to me. It was odd to me. But what was always even fascinating to me, though, was this commitment to the craft and the commitment to improving. Yeah. And... And that was just, and I'm not saying that about one person. I'm saying it about everybody that I, whoever, whose paths I just tangentially crossed through my years at Central in the music department. They were always, always practicing. Yeah. You know, what you're talking about is the jazz culture that lived at ah. Central. And it was something that I can tried to continue when I was there. And I was, I felt very successful because the things you're describing still happened while I was there. Students would get into the music building and practice till two or three in the morning, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. um, and it was one thing that I, the, the, the part of the culture that's, that's maybe transformational is that the older students help the younger students come along. So they, they pretty, you know, for lack of a better term, they kick their ass when they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing. And about, right. about the end of the sophomore year, usually that's where a, a switch flips and folks decide, you know, if I want to get better, I need to do this, 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 that I'm seeing these older folks doing. And, uh, the other, you know, the other part about it is yeah. they, they, it was not, well, I would say there was, there was competition in the music department when I was there and there still was sure. when I, when I taught there, but it's a, it's a kind of competition where it's like, come on, try, try to get better than me. You know, it wasn't like you're trying mm -hmm. to cut down somebody and tear them down. Everybody's trying to elevate everybody. And the result you, was, you saw that the result was this, this program that, it's hard to believe, you know, that the new guy that's been hired for this coming year at Central, we've met once and uh, we're going to meet again. And he has noticed for years about Central, this little college overachieving in terms of the big programs throughout the U.S. that have jazz happening. Um. And he's like, how did you do that? How, how you got to show me how you did that. Cause I want, I want to make sure I keep that going. <laughs> and I'm like, well, we'll see. You know, I, we haven't really talked at that level yet about all the things that you have to do to inspire the students to achieve far more than they think they can. Cause that was really the secret that I discovered with Maud. He got us to play at a higher level than we thought we could. 
It's kind of, you know, in sports, mm-hmm. it's the same kind of thing. If you want your players to excel, you try to get them to play out of their minds, you know? Um, mm-hmm. And when you go to a place like Central and the kind of background that you would come from, typically you go, oh, I'm, there's this kind of thing in your mind about, I, I'm only going to be able to play this good and the program's only going to be like this. Well, Mawad was would not accept that. Because no, you are, you can do this and da 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 and, you know, that's maybe was part of his culture, because I don't know if you know, but his brother, Bob Mowed, was a motivational speaker who who coached many, many people. And Bob Mowed's son was the coach for um, quarterback Seahawks. Russell Wilson. Russell Wilson's coach was, Wait a second. was John Mowed's now, nephew. This- so, so your camera's off because of bandwidth issues, but I think you just saw my head explode. Yeah. <laughs> I never connected those dots. Yeah. And they're so glaringly obvious because Mao, it's not exactly like Smith or Jones. Exactly. It's a, it's a, it's, it's a recognizable name. And I never, I never connected the dots that Bob Mowed. Oh, wow. Yeah. And then his, I don't remember his and son's then name. That, and then that, um, and I can't think of Russell's former, because he's just, he he passed away just recently. Um, uh, last yeah. year, I think. Um, I didn't, I didn't, I knew that his dad, so what was this guy? What was the, the, the youngest, uh, the, the, the young, the, he was in his forties, I think. Yes. Um, that was Russell Wilson's coach, uh, mental coach. I knew his dad was, was the, was the motivational speaker. I knew that, but I didn't connect it to central. I didn't connect that thread. Wow. Isn't that wild? That's yeah. No, that now that makes a little, all of a sudden things from 40 years ago, make a little bit more sense of how Mao where his leadership and drive that makes sense. Yeah. That makes sense. Okay. Yeah. I'm glad we're having this conversation. I'm learning something. Yeah. This, this conversation could go on a long, long time, but I'd like to, I want to shift gears for a couple of things. Sure. Let's, let's talk about, so you've, you've, you've retired, mm-hmm. but you are, but you're still involved in the music yes. industry, if you will. Correct? Yes. Uh, okay. So it's been a year now since I retired and, uh, People ask me, like, what are you going to do? And I said, well, I think I'll continue to judge. See, COVID threw a whole wrench and everything. Like, when you're a person in a position I had at Central, you're frequently asked to judge jazz festivals. And you get called in by Mm -hmm. schools to coach them or clinic them on some big event they have coming up. Um, So I thought, Mm -hmm. well, I'm still going to do that. But I wasn't sure. That I would be able to because of COVID at the time schools weren't allowing outside people to come in. But as it turned out this past year, I was so busy doing that stuff. It was insane. And the way it would work is for instance, I, I went to Vancouver, Washington twice. Cause I know some directors down there and two different schools asked me to come in and do a two day, they call it a jazz retreat. And so I thought, well, mm-hmm. I'm going to try something. I'm going to call, email, 
text other directors that I know in the general metro area of Portland, Vancouver, and tell them I'm going to be down there for a week. And if you want me to come in and do a clinic, I, I'm available at these times. I filled up in like two days, both times. Wow. And so I was doing okay. three, three high schools or middle schools a day for five days. And then I stayed with friends. And then I did it again. That was November. I did it again in January. I did the same thing in Puyallup. I did the same thing in Tri-Cities. And I didn't even try to do the Seattle, Air, Seattle Bellevue, North Seattle area where I have even more connections. And it, what really was the fundamental thing that made them all work is that most of the directors were either colleagues, acquaintances, or former students. And okay. so as soon as they knew I was available, bang, they signed up and they made it work. So um, I'm anticipating I'm going to keep on doing that. And what's really fun about it is I'm still involved in music education, but I don't have mm -hmm. to go to the office every day. I just drive over the pass or drive down the gorge and I hang yeah. out with students and directors and everything that I'm doing is meant to help both the director and the students get better. You know, it's that, come on, do this. It's the same kind of mm -hmm. thing that, that Maud would, would, uh, make happen in front of people like, come on, this is, you know, and I just, I don't ever, I don't want to ever f feel like I'm just going to say, well, okay, that's good enough. What my, almost always my approach is that's pretty good, but you need to still do this, this, and this to get to the promised land, so to speak. So I do that. I, I thought I was going to write a bunch of music. I've had this, you know, I was, as I said much earlier in our talk today that, I got a degree in composition. I was into jazz arranging. I really wanted to pursue mm -hmm. that. It takes time and I haven't had the time that I felt I needed to make it happen. So I have a home studio that I've set up. I've only used the, the, the software that I, that I bought for like 30 minutes <laughs> in the last year. <laughs> um, I, I can't, you know, I'm still planning on doing that. In fact, I was, talking to a former student yesterday who asked me what it would be like if his school could commission me to write some arrangements. And I said, that would be cool because then I would have a reason to sit down there and start writing again, you know? Um, mm, so I'm hoping yeah. to do that. Um, but I'm all right. My main, my main thing is to stay involved with music education and just help people get better. I just finished writing a, a chapter for a book. It's called Teaching Oh wow. Teaching okay. Music Through Jazz Performance, I think is the title of it. It's volume three is coming out. And I was asked to write a chapter. And what the book is, it's filled with um, review slash teaching tips on a specific arrangement. Um, basically, it's, you know, 10, 12 pages about how to coach an ensemble on this particular piece of okay. music. So I just finished a chapter of that. So that should be published. I don't know when, but sometime in the future. Who knows what? That's I might that's very cool. All right. So I got to ask some questions. I'm going to treat you like a, you, you. This whole conversation has been about your musical education career, if you will. Yeah. 
but I'm going to shift gears for a second. I'm going to ask you to put on your performer hat. Okay. Okay. This is a Washington State podcast, so the, the questions all pertain to Washington State. Where's the coolest place that you've performed as a musician at Washington State? Um, see, that's a hard one to say where I perform because I think of myself as performing when I'm up in front of a band directing it. So I'm assuming you mean I'll let you. I'll let you do. I'll let. I'll. I'll that. That can qualify. That can. Qualify. That, that'll work. Um, yeah, that'll qualify. I don't know. I remember way back. When I was a TA at Central, we played a Seahawks halftime show in the Kingdom. Okay. That was pretty cool. Um, okay. Other, the most most fun kind of gigs that I've played have actually been right here in Ellensburg. Um, there's a festival here called, well, it was called Jazz in the Valley. Now it's called the Ellensburg Music mm-hmm. Festival. And so for years... I used to direct the uh, all-star big band for that. And we would have, for a number of years, we had guest artists, like international heavyweight jazz players that would be guest artists with the band. And so one year, uh, some some people listening to the podcast might know these names, uh, Ingrid Jensen, Eddie Daniels, Bobby Shue. And working with those people was a super treat. And then, and then all the people in the band were basically my friends from college, you know, they were all alumni. And that was a, a thing that Mowat had started with Jazz in the, mm-hmm. in the Valley. And when he passed away, I took over the, the duties of that. Um, so that was fun. Um, I've also played at the Seasons in Yakima uh, as a player myself uh, a number of times. But also as a director, I've, I've done guest artist shots there with my band and various people. And, uh, and then a few weeks ago I played at this really great venue in Prosser called the princess. I have a little trio. It's me on trumpet, a bass player and a piano player. And we're called the professors. Okay. The bass player is actually a former student who teaches at central in the electronic engineering department. And, and then the piano okay. player, the piano player teaches in the accounting department. So I'm the only music faculty member on this, in this trio. And we did, we call it, we're called the professors and we played a, a beautiful gig at this place called the, the princess. I played a, a number of wineries, uh, J bell winery. Those are always fun. I don't know. I've, I've done a lot of, of things. I, I made a big switch in my uh my performing about 10 years into my time at central where when i when i arrived when i first got there in 2002 the other faculty the other brass faculty french horn trumpet trombone and tuba recruited me to play in the faculty brass quintet it's music i hadn't played much very demanding and for 10 years i struggled to keep up with these guys I practiced my butt off as much as I could. And after 10 years of that, I was like, you know, I'm the director of jazz studies. I really should be practicing my craft. And so I left the faculty brass quintet and I decided to start practicing 
the stuff that I was preaching. Because literally, I would teach jazz improv class and students could play better than me. Um, that's probably still true because <laughs> I have some had some very talented students. But still, I couldn't demonstrate necessarily what I was talking about. So I thought, I, you know, I need to practice. And so for the last 10 years, I've been doing that. And so I've, be, I've become a much better player in this idiom. And I understand so much more about it so that I could actually perform competently in public, but I could also teach students and I could say, you know, here's how I approach this chord progression that I've found works really well. And then they'll go, Oh yeah. You know, so it, it really informed my, my class work, like a jazz piano class, uh, jazz improv class, etc. That's the way it's supposed to work. You know, as a musician, if you're, okay. you should be, doing what it is you're trying to teach students. It shouldn't be theoretical. And so that's, right. that's in a nutshell, what's been going on with my performing. So anyway. All right. Now I'm going to put you in the audience. Mm -hmm. Where's a venue that you like to see music performed at? I don't know. Almost anywhere. I know that, uh, I just saw a concert Friday night at, when I talked about the seasons in Yakima. Mm -hmm. People love that venue, but to me, it's there's too much echo. It's great for choirs, string quartets, et cetera, but anything that uses bass and drums, uh, which you know jazz does, it's, it's too echo. So while I like the way things feel in there and the way they look, it's, it's not quite right sometimes. Although... I saw Chick Corea there once. I saw Pat Metheny there twice. Um, okay. It, you know, and th those were totally amazing concerts. There's others too. And I've performed there with guest artists. And, you know, there there's so many things about the seasons that's great. Like I, I Probably the coolest concert I ever did was... Um, there was a tradition for years that I started. Uh, we would do the Jazz Nutcracker every year, which is uh, Ellington and Strayhorn wrote arrangements mm -hmm. of Tchaikovsky's Nutcracker. And I had heard that mm -hmm. the Jazz at Lincoln Center Orchestra, directed by Wynton Marsalis, did a concert where a chamber orchestra would play the real original Tchaikovsky movements and then fought one after another the jazz band would then play Ellington's arrangements. And so All right. I did that. I, I, I went to our orchestra director, Nick Quilly, and I said, you know, this would be really cool for us to do. And I think we could, we could play this a bunch of places. So we, we played it at the seasons and that was probably the best one. Uh, Cause of the way we set up and people were just packed in there and it was just electric, you know, but we also played at the uh, mm -hmm. performing arts center in Wenatchee. We did it up there and, also at Central, uh, we did it. Um, so anyway, you know, you heard me say the Seasons right. has, maybe that's my favorite place, but it's not ideal for okay. everything. Sure. I like, well, I I like Ben Arroyo too. No idea. Same, same thing. Ben Arroyo is really a great hall for certain kinds of music. I've played on, on the stage on there with my, Ben Arroyo with my jazz band and it doesn't work. It's way too echoey. So the next question is going to combine two questions. I typically ask my guests um, mm -hmm. if one, one question is if you're a musician, you get this question. 
Um, but everybody else gets part two of it. So we're going to spin it around. So here's the question. You can have coffee with any musician historically living or historical. Who would it be and where would you want to have coffee? I think um, Stravinsky, Igor Stravinsky, the composer. Okay. <laughs> and I think I would mm-hmm. want to have it maybe in Paris. And if you could say during a time, it would be during the time that the Rite of Spring was being played in Paris and there was, okay. there was a riot because <laughs> it was so revolutionary, the music. Um that's what I think. Right. Okay, that's I've never asked that question in those in in, the, in framed it like that before. Yeah, that's a great answer. That's a great answer. When you're not not using the software that you've only used for thirty minutes, <laughs> when, when you're not practicing, what do you what do you like to do for fun and recreation around Ellensburg? Well, I ride bikes, road bikes. I try to ride okay. at least this time of year, five, six days a week. I've had a... And how much, how many miles are you putting on typically? Um, when I'm, when I'm riding at the level I want to, 25 miles each time. So it's that. Okay. 200, 150, okay. 200 miles, somewhere in there. Kind of depends. Okay. Uh, I'm not this year at the level I want to be yet, at yet because I had a shoulder surgery in the spring and I couldn't ride for a long time. So I'm just not in shape mm-hmm. today. I rode 19 miles and it was no problem, but so, so where are you riding for 19 miles? Where did you, what's the, what's the route? Well, I rode here in Ellensburg. I rode East on brick mill, went south on Venture Road and then back on Lyons. So I was basically at the far eastern end of the valley. And I Mm -hmm. I lived right by the airport, so I rode out about 10 miles and rode back 10 miles. But I I probably have 20 different routes that I I ride. Which route I might ride depends on the wind (laughs) or lack of it. Um, And so... Uh One of my, my favorite rides is to ride from Ellensburg to Cleelum and back. It's about a 65, 75, 70 mile ride. And uh, mm-hmm. I haven't done that in a number of years now because of forest fires, uh, wind, timing, et cetera. So I'm hoping to be able to do that this summer, maybe twice if I can. Okay. Uh, but there's all, there's routes nice. all over the place. So, the Kittitas Valley, it's really a great place to ride. The The drawback is that the roads are all chip sealed. I don't know if you know what that is. It's a it's the surface. And so that's it, rough. It's mm-hmm. not a, a black, like riding on blacktop at all. So I, I have right. a bike that handles that. It's The bike frame I use is, was made to ride on the cobblestones of Europe during uh Tour de France, so it, it handles that pretty well. Anyway, okay. so other things I do, I, right. I do a lot of gardening. Like we, I'm gonna 
when we get off the phone here, I'm going to go out and uh, plant some things, some seeds. Um, I like to do woodworking. Um, just today, all right. A, um, a friend gave me his wood lathe, and so we moved it into my garage today, right before our, our call. And I'm looking forward to getting that running. And uh, my my daughter was like, "Well, what are you going to do on that, Dad?" Because she's like. Oh, another tool, another thing. <laughs> I said, well, I'm going to make some bowls. <laughs> oh, you can make bowls on a lathe. I said, yeah, that's kind of like the coolest thing you can do on a lathe is make bowls. So right. anyway, all those kind of things. I like Have you do. ever. Okay. Do you, you and I are the wrong demographic, but have you ever heard of a guy out of Washougal, Washington? He's on TikTok. And he goes by the name of the Blind Woodsman? No, have not. I had him on as a guest. He's blind. And he records videos for YouTube and TikTok and Instagram of him turning items on a lathe. Hmm. And first off, I'm not allowed near power tools. Period. (laughs) I, I'm, I, I, my new name would be Stumpy. I would just (laughs) hurt myself. Yeah. But so I have this probably irrational fear of power tools. And so this, he's blind and I'm just, I'm, I'm, I was amazed by watching him and how he goes about the, the craft and the art of turning wood without being able to see it. And his pieces that he he completes they're 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 beautiful, right? Hmm. You should just look him up, the blind woodsman, um, and watch watch a couple of his you know videos, and it, it's just it's fascinating to watch. This is a guy who show them to your daughter, and you can say this is the type of stuff I'm going to be doing because he's he's creating all these really interesting uh, wooden projects. Mm-hmm. Um. Just, you know, I'm trying to imagine how you would do that blind. He, he, he's got videos where he shows how he does it. You know, his, his wife is filming, you know, so that's the first thing. So that helps, but he's got this studio. Everything has a place. Um, he's just extremely, as I think you should, anybody using power tools should be is extremely, you know, process driven, checklist driven, if you will. Sure. And, uh, but he, um, yeah, he got into in, into that because he was a piano tuner, and uh, ended up, you know, moving more into doing woodworking, and uh, it's it's fascinating to watch. He's 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 a very fascinating uh, individual. Yeah, I'll um, check that out. And he's down in Washougal. Yeah, just something wow. for you to 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 look at, you know, because you know if you, 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 it sounds like you have all the time in the world. You know, <laughs> yeah. To to to. to to go on to the internet and go down a rabbit hole. Well, to, to wrap this up, because you're going to go plant things mm-hmm. and you've got things to do. My get out of jail free card. I always ask people is what didn't I ask you that I should have? Well, I wanted to, uh, to talk about my connection with Duff McKagan. Well, I'm going to pause you. I'm going to put you on the spot. 
Would you be willing to come back on for another episode and we'll explore that? Sure. That would be fun. Okay. So we'll just, yeah, let's just leave that one, that open loop. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. So don't answer that question. So I'll re-ask the question is regarding the whole jazz and central experience. Was there anything I didn't ask you that we should have talked about, about your, your, your musical education career? I, I think we, we covered large chunks of it. I mean, there's, there's so many little parts that go into it. Um, we, we covered, you know, the, the big things about schools, but I, I think one significant thing that I did in the middle of all of this is that I, I ran the Mount Hood Festival of Jazz workshop for a number of years when I was in Portland. Okay. And that, that was a really cool experience that I learned a lot about teaching the idiom and working with fabulous mm-hmm. musicians, you know, so there was, it still was part of the educational process, but it was like that extra stuff that you do. That's not part of a institution per se. So. You've had a fascinating career. And it sounds like it's still fascinating because you're still still doing stuff. Now you're traveling, doing a lot of these things uh, on 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 the, on the go, if you will, versus being based out of Ellensburg. And you've connected some dots for me, and that I didn't expect. I never really thought about them until you say things. I'm like, oh, well, that's how that worked. Um, so I, I appreciate that um, a lot, and I. I'm looking forward to scheduling another time to sit down with you and and we'll unpack some of those other stories. Yeah. (laughs) Thanks, Chris. Sure. Scott, it's been a pleasure to be here. Okay. Join us next time for another episode of the Exploring Washington State podcast.